You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome all to the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 131, no decimal, because we're all here plus one, which I'm not really sure how we note that. Anyway, I'm David Grubbs. I'm a professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. Uh, with me today is uh, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at uh, Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, Michael? I'm good, David. Oh, well, it's good to see it, uh, hear you. Uh, also with us is, yes, yes, the aura. Uh, also with us is Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing well. It is sunny and warm here down in Georgia. And by the way, David, congratulations on a successful dissertation defense. We now have a, a full uh, slate of PhDs in the house. Awesome. That, uh, that, that's the whole lot of piled higher and deeper. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and we are three plus one today. Uh, we have a guest. Uh, Dan Dawson uh, is with us, a, a meteorologist, a storm chaser, a, uh, uh, an all-around interesting person with, with interesting stories to tell about whether trying to do bad things to innocuous people. Um, <laughs> how are you today, Dan? I am doing great. How are all, how are all of you? <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're splendid and, and we are very, very glad that you were able to, uh, able to make time to come on this show with us. I'm great. I'm really glad to be here. Glad to be back. Um, excited. Yeah. Well, uh, today, uh, if, if the insightful reader has, uh, not already inferred it, uh, we have a special guest because we have a special topic. Um, today we're going to talk about the weather. But <laughs> before we get to that, we need to talk about letters. Uh, have we gotten any? We have several. Uh, we'll start with an email from Paul Schleifer. Schleifer. German names are hard for me. Um, <laughs> so it's either Schleifer or Schleifer, and we've probably pronounced it wrong when he, he's written in before. I don't know. <clears throat> He says he enjoyed our C.S. Lewis episode. In fact, he's teaching the capstone course at Southern Wesleyan University, and he had his students listen to the podcast for our, their discussion today. Hey, hey. Huh. Maybe they'll keep listening. Ooh. A couple of things that I think you left out, he said. One, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson took a walk with Lewis as he was thinking about issues of faith. Lewis was very fond of myths, feeling that myths were a powerful way of teaching. The Tolkien-Dyson argument with Lewis that night went something like, So, Jack, you love myths. That's great. But what if one of the myths was actually, you know, like, true? Of course, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, anthropological study of a myth included Christianity as a typical myth. Campbell employs this notion in his 1949 Hero with a Thousand Faces. 
So Lewis had accepted the power of the myth of Christianity, but he still considered it a myth. But what a great argument by Tolkien and Dyson. My parallel that I share with students is this. Suppose you hear the story that the dean of your college was walking through the cafeteria and slipped on a banana peel to the great amusement of all present. She didn't get hurt, of course. Now, the image of a character falling on a banana peel is prevalent in our media. Movies and TVs abound with this joke. So because we have so many fictions about characters slipping on a banana peel, does that mean the story of the dean slipping on one is necessarily false? Uh, number two, he says, another aspect of the humor of Dr. Elwin Ransom's being a philologist is this. Tolkien was a philologist. And surprised by joy, Lewis wrote, friendship with the latter marked the breakdown of two old prejudices. At my first coming into the world, I had been implicitly warned never to trust a papist. And at my first coming into the English faculty, <laughs> explicitly never to trust a philologist. Tolkien was both. Their friendship is thus somewhat of a miracle. Should we appeal to have Tolkien beatified? Maybe so. <laughs> well, I was on board with that one anyway. Thank you for that email, Paul, and the, and the correction. Yeah, it reminds me of a story that, uh, you know, Nietzsche, in a an aphorism or a letter or something, said that, you know, the, the most uh, poisonous people to civilization are gluttons, Catholics, and Democrats. And when someone recited this, they said he must have really hated uh, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs> His least favorite – Chesterton's faith was on his dartboard. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, uh, listeners, if the chronologies don't overlap, just run with the joke, please. <laughs> we, <laughs> uh, we also got another email about the C.S. Lewis episode. And by the way, we got a ton of correspondence about that episode. I think our listeners were hungry for, our, for us finally to launch into C.S. Lewis territory. This one's from Jonathan Ribesman. Uh, again, those uh, German diphthongs, uh, please forgive us for them. Jonathan says thus, I just listened to your C.S. Lewis episode and was pleasantly surprised to hear one of my favorite Christian alternative bands of the early to mid-90s, the era in which I learned to appreciate music and in which I think there was some decent Christian alternative being produced. As the lead-in music, poor old Lou. Sometimes... The connection between the song and the episode theme is obvious, but this one took me a little while. Then I remembered the name Poor Old Lou comes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Very subtle, Dr. Farmer. Thank you. I couldn't think of anything better. <laughs> Speaking of Farmer, I have a technical comment. I listened to the episode that mentioned in one of the emails that Farmer always sounds soft. At the time, I think the listener was interpreted as saying he was soft-spoken, but I know what he means in every single episode I can remember, and I've listened to almost all of them. The volume of Farmer's voice is distinctly lower than that of Gilmore or Grubbs or Anderson. It's like I'm sitting at a conference table with Grubbs and Gilmore on either side and Farmer way down at the other end. I think that's what the listener meant. It would be nice to have his volume lever level closer to the others so I didn't have to constantly adjust the volume on my iPod. I am working on it. I know we got the, the email from a listener before, and he gave me some advice, which I've been trying to take. I've been trying to add a compressor to my vocal track. Part of the issue is when we record, it splits me – it splits us into two tracks. I'm on the left side. I mean, it doesn't have to be the left, but it, you understand it gives me two tracks. I'm on one side, which I usually flush to, a little bit to the left, and then everybody else on the call is on the right. 
as as I, I am known as the engineer of this podcast, I don't want to make my voice substantially louder than everybody else is. So I tend to err a little bit on making myself quieter so that I don't come across like a raging egomaniac for things that I don't actually say. Um, so, I mean, there are there are technical issues why it is the way it is, which is not me exactly making an excuse, because, again, I am on a different track than everybody else, so I should be able to adjust the volume better than I do. I don't know. In the fall, I hope we're going to have a student worker editing all the shows on this network, and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. That is right, right. But I'm well, sorry. Yeah, I'm we... sorry to all our listeners. I, 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 feel like a, I feel like a failure as an engineer. <laughs> it's your natural modesty coming out there you go no actually it is my unnatural modesty i have to force myself to be modest i'm so concerned with what people think of me that anyway <laughs> oh goodness finally jonathan writes i have a comment about the actual content of the c.s lewis episode i don't remember any of you mentioning the book planet narnia the seven heavens and the imagination of c.s lewis by michael ward Ward argues that there's actually a deep coherence to the Chronicles of Narnia, grounded in the seven heaven and corresponding seven planets of the medieval system. Ward claims that it even makes sense of the appearance of Father Christmas in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which Gilmore might find interesting since he was so jarred by him. Uh, He provides a blurb from the back of the cover that he derived from Amazon. I'm not going to read that. He finishes up thus, Are any of you familiar with this text? Real quick, I haven't read it. Grubs? I've not read it when it first came out. I saw the title and, well, I just saw the Planet Narnia title and thought, here is yet another kind of mass market attempt to tap it, tap into a, you know, a popular, um, you know, a popular series at the time. And I just tuned it out. Later on, I heard um, some scholarly um, buzz about it. And I, I'm interested in getting into it. I just haven't had gone, I just haven't gotten to it yet, so right. I can't really comment. Fair enough. So we will not, Michael. Uh, no, no, of course not. Okay, I, I I didn't figure, but I guess I shouldn't assume. Uh, all right, then I'll skip the rest of the questions about the book since we've not actually read it. Uh, keep up the good work and welcome back, Doctor Grubbs, which I assume you will be by the time this is read, if it is read. So thank you, was. Jonathan, for that email. Uh, David, we, (laughs) now this one is amusing. It's not actually an email, but it is a long (laughs) series of Facebook encounters that are, are hosting, uh, at least you and I, well, and uh, we got an, and we got an email about it. We did, we did get one email. Oh, did we really? In addition to a long series of Facebook encounters. So David, (laughs) go ahead and set this up and, uh, we'll knock it down. So, um, in, uh, to me, yet a, another uh, instance of God's exhaustive providence over the happenings of Earth. Um, on the same day that I defended my dissertation on Beowulf, it was announced that there would be published Tolkien's very own translation of Beowulf. And so uh, a lot of the congratulations that I got on Facebook were, congratulations, Dr. Grubbs, did you hear about the Tolkien Beowulf translation? <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I... I that 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 was awesome considering that Tolkien was um well I've I've and I've I'm very public about this Tolkien was instrumental in me having anything to do with this uh, with this gig uh so it's I I think it's wonderful that that such a thing happened hey before our 
listeners send in the emails. Yeah, I know about the Updike biography that's coming out next month. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm actually a little bit surprised about the Tolkien Beowulf, though. I, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know there was such a thing. I can't yeah, believe it's taken them that long either. to release it. Well, I'm kind of surprised by it because if I remember correctly, didn't didn't Tolkien make Old English a um, an undergrad requirement at Oxford? Did, wasn't he kind of single handedly? That responsible sounds about right. That? Yeah, which seems to indicate to me that he didn't want people reading translations. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he maybe he would make an exception for his. I don't know. The important thing know. is that will align the pockets of his descendants. Yeah. Well, <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I've, even granting Michael's uh, cynicism there, I've already contacted the publisher for a review copy, so. <laughs> awesome. All right, one other bit of listener feedback, and then we'll go ahead and get into our episode. Uh, we've received, like I said, a number of Facebook messages about our C.S. Lewis episode. Uh, we also uh, got tapped on Twitter by one trip fuller about our C.S. Lewis episode. Uh, he thoroughly enjoyed it. He resonated with our experiences. He was a campus minister for a spell, so he's also encountered the undergrad who knows uh, six C.S. Lewis quotes. Uh, so he, he definitely resonated with that. I also approached him uh, publicly. It's on Twitter, so I'm not disclosing any uh, government secrets here, uh, about maybe doing an episode of Christian Humanist Podcast sometime on open theism and process thought. So... Uh, listeners, if I can get my ducks in a row, uh, we might see if we can get that going maybe in the late spring, more likely in the fall. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm just excited that he's willing to do that. Uh, it's going to have to be in the fall. I've never read any open theism or do you mean, well, that, well, that's going to be, well, that's going to be part of the process is my finding some brief articles for you all to read, uh, you know, so that you don't have to go out and read like Clark Pinnock books and such. <laughs> so mm. thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right david let's let's go ahead and get into the storm awesome into the heart of the tempest um <laughs> huzzah so um we're gonna talk about weather today dear listeners um now michael i'm gonna pitch this one at you um i have observed that on most issues, there are usually two basic perspectives, the Hebrew <laughs> point of view and the Greco-Roman point of view. You're just you trying know, to just make Nathan angry, aren't you? <laughs> I haven't been able to pull this gag in a long time. Come on. <laughs> so, Michael, um, talk us through some of the big moments in the Old Testament featuring weather, especially weather and God. Well, uh, the thing I think that's important to remember about, especially the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, uh, is that it takes place in a desert for the most part. I mean, you get the Garden of Eden, <laughs> uh, but after that, it's mostly in the desert. The Promised Land is a desert. All the places in between are deserts. It's just a bunch of desert. And, and we forget that because we all tend to remake the uh, the Bible into whatever land we're living in, or, you know, more likely we, we tend to make it into England's green and pleasant land uh, following Blake. Uh, but there's a there's an author who's been making the rounds on uh, podcast and radio shows lately, uh, Richard Rodriguez, who's kind of a neo 
mystic Catholic. And, and his, his big thing is that uh, God is a desert God. So I'm going to read an excerpt from his latest book. And I have not read the whole book. I'm getting this off of a, a Pathios blog. So, um, But it is, it is from his book. He says, The word desert comes from the notion of deserted. Something was here and now it's gone. What's gone, of course, is the ocean. This was the bottom of the ocean. And this is a place of such rigor and difficulty that one stands in nature with an adversarial relationship. So a softer, more sentimental God would have revealed himself on a lakeshore or in a forest. That would have been a very different experience. One of the things I'm asking of people, believers and, and unbelievers, is that we come to terms with place. The Semitic God has always been acknowledged to have broken through time. The eternal breakthrough of time at a specific moment, but we don't talk about place as much, partially because it's such a difficult thing to imagine that we're being called by God in a place of death, which is, of course, what the desert is, right? It's a place with very little rainfall and uh, very little vegetation, and, and it's, a, it's a dry and barren place that nevertheless life comes out of. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, there's all sorts of weather in the Bible. God is always um, punishing people with, uh, with rain and fires and Lightning and thunder and earthquakes, if you count that as weather. Um, I don't know. It's, it's some sort of natural phenomenon that, that's close enough for my purposes. But at the same time, <laughs> there's also the sense that God inhabits the weather. So like at the end of Job, when he appears to Job to yell at him for being such a uh, doofus, he, he comes in on a whirlwind, <laughs> right? He comes, in on, he comes in on this tornado. But then at the same time, you get Elijah hiding in the cave, and he hears the wind go by, and God's not in the wind. So... God mm-hmm. is associated with the weather, but he's not the weather. He's, he somehow stands apart from it, but is able to inhabit it and to use it for his purposes. And then, you know, one of the other famous weather passages of the Bible is the rain falls on the just and the unjust, which um, mm. because I grew up in an area that was not a desert, I've always taken to mean, oh, you know, bad things happen to good people and bad people. In fact, if you think about it, in a desert environment, the rain falling is a good thing. It, it's, it's life, which means God blesses the unjust as well as the just. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I imagine the principle holds either way. Am I, uh, Nathan, am I leaving anything big out? Um, only that, you know, remember that the basic imaginative idiom, if you will, of the Old Testament uh, is that of the ancient Near East. And this is a time when the technology of seafaring hasn't really advanced to the point where you can make long ocean voyages and even, you know, Mediterranean ship travel is an enormously dangerous thing. So a lot of times images of chaos and death and destruction are going to be images of the sea. Uh, And as we're going to talk about later, I mean, when Jesus does still that storm, uh, there's definitely some of that imagery still operative there. Uh, so remember that whenever you see a storm in the Old Testament, uh, you know, I mean, that is not saying that there is polytheism in the Old Testament, but it is pulling on that sort of imaginative vocabulary of polytheism. You know, one of the gods of just about every Mediterranean pantheon uh, has something to do with storms. And I guess, really, I mean, most polytheistic cultures, now that I think about it, sure, Northern you got, Europe. you got Zeus up there throwing yeah. thunderbolts and... And right. God throws thunderbolts too, right? I mean, sure. Yahweh throws thunderbolts. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, remember that in the ancient world, you don't get gods for just any old thing, but they usually tend to be very powerful and very uncontrollable things. So, I mean, you get love and you get war, you get the yield of crops, you get death for pity's sake, uh, and notably, you get the weather. Uh, it mm-hmm. is a force that is beyond control. 
and, and beyond explanation for them, I imagine, and and certainly beyond prediction. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can we can predict weather. I mean, AccuWeather predicts it a hundred days in advance with perfect accuracy based on their name. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, don't uh, call Danny, I'm curious. And and Danny, I'm going to call you Danny because I've always called you Danny. You know that. No, but no uh, problem. <laughs> uh, what what's your favorite weather story from the Bible? Oh wow, um, I really do like the one that uh, that. Uh, David mentioned about uh, God uh, passing by um, uh, when uh, he was in the cleft of the rock and saying, um, you know, God was not in the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying. Yeah, I haven't read it for a while, but that one I do really enjoy because I think yeah, I, 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 I totally agree that you see an image of God being in control of the weather throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But there's also this sense that it that he's not you know, embodied in it, that, mm-hmm. so that the weather happens um, in some way that that God isn't just using it for purposes of judgment and things like that, that it's, it's something that's just there as part of the created order. Mm-hmm. So, and I also really um, like the, uh, the scenes in Job. Job's probably uh, my favorite book of the Bible, if I had to pick one. Um, just a lot of it to do with just all the different talk of the natural world and sort of the chaos and that fact that God created it all. And he, he asked Job a list of questions about the weather, like, uh, you know, do you know where the storehouses of the hail of the, of hail is, you know, how the snows forms, mm-hmm. you know, do you, do you tell the lightning to report, Oh, here I am, you know? And basically he's calling Job out for his, you know, talking about things that he's ignorant about. And so I, I just kind of like that sort of smack down there that it's <laughs> weather is something that's, bigger than all of us we it affects all of us we don't control it at all um and only god knows all the details of it Mm. so that that's those are two of my favorites i think well that's the the hebrew point of view which is um (laughs) naturally the 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 good appropriate and sacred one um now um you're such a jerk uh you I, I hear you like this Aristotle guy, and he's one of those Greco-Romans that, that people talk about. What's the Greco-Roman um, perspective? Yeah, yeah. What, what's what's the Greco-Roman take on weather, which, uh, which naturally will be exhaustively uh, represented you by You know, our listeners, our listeners who have joined any time in the last three years are going to have no idea what's going on here. Right, right. Well, go, go to ChristianHumanist.org and search for the name Brian McLaren. Uh, and you will find some uh, some clues to this mystery, Scooby-Doo. Now, on to Aristotle. First of all, it's notable that Aristotle, contrary to some some uh, stereotypes about him, does not write books about everything. Uh, for instance, there is no Aristotelian treatise on education. There is no uh, Aristotelian treatise on the art of war. Uh, but on the other hand, what Aristotle is very interested in is those human practices on one hand that are complex enough to bear in his mind the examination of philosophy and then on the other hand uh really families of natural phenomena uh that again share enough in common to constitute a science uh so his uh treatise the meteorologica there we go hard to pronounce that greek without slipping into the English consonant sounds, 
uh, is a book that, you know, in the 21st century looks impossibly ambitious. Uh, although if you try to think about it through an Aristotelian lens, the subject matter makes sense. Aristotle starts with the four elements, and when we say elements, you shouldn't think of the periodic table that you learned in high school chemistry, but rather states of matter. Uh, so you've got earth, solid things, water, liquid things, air, gaseous things. And then the fourth one being fire, which is to say those states of matter that do not receive energy passively but actively give off energy. He hmm. says that the interaction between these four elemental states of matter, and I'm going to go ahead and call them that even though it's not Aristotle's vocabulary, the relationships between these four things ultimately constitute an enormous range of physical realities. The meteorolo meteorology, which is the name that Aristotle gives his treatise, deals not only with the wind and the rain and the fog, although it certainly treats those, uh, but also with shooting stars, also with comets, also with the constitution of the human body, also with the movements of the sea, also with the difference between land, sea, sky, whatever medium the planets travel through, so on and so forth. In other words, it's a very comprehensive treatise on the way that bodies interact with each other in space. Now, a couple insights that Aristotle has that I found uh, very pleasantly surprising as I was reading. Uh, one, because he, is at, because he has inherited uh, from Plato and Socrates a love for allegory, uh, he takes the old uh, myth of Oceanus, uh, which we talked about in the episode David hosted about the ocean, uh, and he says that, you know, the ancients wrote about a great river that surrounds all land. And he says, of course, geographically, there's no reason to believe that is a historical account, but he says, allegorically considered, it shows that the ancients had a sort of uh, pre-philosophical notion that water doesn't all emanate from a common source and then go to some place that is unknown, but rather it is always perpetually cycling. Uh, hmm. And that's largely what Aristotle deals with when he talks about the weather is a, a very Greek philosophical, make no mistake, but still a very systematic treatment of what we would call the water cycle. He talks about the condensation of water in clouds, the descent of the water in rain, the collection of water in rivers, the depositing of river water into the oceans, the evaporation of the ocean, the cycling around that, you know, we sort of take for granted as, uh, you know, something that we learn in a modern era science class. Uh, Aristotle already has a pretty clear view of all that. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, do the whole book because we really could do an episode just on this book. But I will say that he has, I mean, pretty interesting accounts of, rainstorms, of hoarfrost, of hailstones, of all sorts of things that, you know, the modern science of meteorology deals with. And then in addition to that, uh, you know, he deals with, like I said, things that we normally think of as geological phenomena like earthquakes, astronomical phenomena like comets and meteorites, all sorts of interesting things. Uh, Dan, when we were doing show prep, you mentioned that you were aware of Aristotle. Uh, what kind of background, if any, did you have in grad school with this kind of thing? Uh, well, that's a good question. I actually don't know that much about Aristotle. And actually, uh, my brief uh, attempt at getting up to speed on it was actually prompted by the show notes. Okay, so, all right. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, we did talk a little bit about Aristotle um, in some of my meteorology classes, but a lot of times it was it was sort of uh, consigned to the okay, this is what we used to think about the weather, and now this is what we think now. And, oh, sure, uh, sure. And, um, and I, I think sometimes that gives a little bit of disservice to uh, what you know, has come before. And so in my brief uh, uh, perusal of some history of Aristotle's meteorological concepts, I was struck by a couple things. One was how much he got right, um, mm-hmm. And the other is the opposite of that, how much he actually got wrong and yeah. <laughs> why. And, um, well, for one thing, you mentioned one thing that he did get right. At least he got the prefiguring of the water cycle, the hydrologic mm-hmm. cycle. Um, he also uh, talked about air having weight, which we know is to be the correct uh, right now. But uh, he also had some uh, kind of strange ideas of, of wind. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, one of the things that I found was that um, he critiqued a previous uh, uh, philosopher, I think Anaximander, mm-hmm. um, who actually had a more or less correct description of wind as being the motion of air. And Aristotle really didn't like that because he had this idea of this dual aspects of uh, exhalations, dry and moist exhalations. So he mm-hmm. saw wind as being some sort of collection of moist exhalations and uh, not really the motion of the air itself, whereas Anaximander and others said, no, it's the motion of air, and it turns out they were right. Um, mm-hmm. So that, those are just a couple examples that go on from there. But um, uh, one of the things that I think that Aristotle did right was he had a very robust uh, idea of, of deductive reasoning. He uh, was really good at taking a theory – um, and then deducing implications from that theory. And mm-hmm. in the modern scientific method, that's an important piece of it. But what he didn't have so much and what others following him emphasized more and more was the opposite, the, an inductive uh, way of looking at things, where you take observations, detailed quali- quality observations of the natural world, and then you deduce uh, principles from those. And mm-hmm. modern science needs both of those, and we try to work with both of those. And so one the, the pitfalls that Aristotle fell into was just relying too much on dedu- deduction based on his own theories. And when something didn't fit his theory of, of the elemental interactions and the exhalations and things like that, he was liable to dismiss it just based on that, even if the observations coming in, which admittedly were limited back then, were contradicting that. So I think that, that Aristotle is to be commended for being really the first that we know about and making a systematic attempt at discussing the weather. Uh, but since then, we've, we've had a lot more, uh, uh, obviously, standing on a lot of shoulders of giants since then that have really revised our picture wholesale. So that, those are sort of my thoughts on Aristotle. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, we, we, we've sketched out the, the Hebrew perspective and, and, and the Greco-Roman perspective. <laughs> Um, I guess I see the way this is already tending. It, it, it seems, Dan, as if you're actually going to be siding with this godless heathen materialist. Um, but I, I implore you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so how, how, do, how do you deal with, uh, with the tension between, uh, between the, the, the kind of perspectives that are being pre- presented here? Um, well, I, I actually think that both of these perspectives can coexist. Um, 
and uh, something that that science uh, people who are scientists and people of faith have been discussing for back and forth for a long time. I don't think there's really any good all-around satisfying answer to how that can happen. That's one of the things I hope that we can talk more about in the Book of Nature podcast coming up. But but my my basic perspective is that there are these different approaches, the sort of the scientific naturalist approaches and the uh, the approach of, of sort of seeing the seeing God as being in control of everything are are looking at it from two different angles, looking at the question and the problems from two different angles, but they they are complementary. So for example, uh, in a hailstorm, you can scientifically describe how a hailstorm forms by, say, the cloud droplets freezing as they get high up in the atmosphere um, and then collecting water on um, in the updrafts and getting cycled around and growing into hailstones, which eventually become large, too large to fall out by gravity. And uh, they come down and hit the ground. And then you can also talk about you know, how this was viewed by people as being a punishment for or for whatever transgression or whatever. And that's just a kind of a feeble example of that. But both of those could be correct, depending on how you look at it. Mm. So those are, that's just one one uh, possible way of looking at these things. And the, uh, the mention of, to use a slightly more uh, positive example, the mention of God sending the, the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I, I actually, I've always seen that as being a positive thing, like God is good to the unjust as well as the just. Um, mm. You can describe the weather patterns that lead to rain falling, you know, in different regions, and it, it doesn't matter where people live. It, it falls based on these natural patterns, but that doesn't preclude the idea that God would have set it up that way on purpose. So that's that's another good example, I think. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to have to discard my simplistic dichotomies. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I aim to please. <laughs> well, um, dear listeners, uh, during show prep, we tossed around uh, a lot of different ideas. And uh, Michael, uh, you mentioned in particular being able to um, speak with a great deal of authority and uh, also feeling about uh, the weather in Minnesota. So w- would you care to enlarge on that theme for a minute or two? I'm not going to be able to enlarge on it very much, but I did grow up in Georgia <laughs> and I moved to Minnesota from Florida. So, I mean, this has been the longest, coldest winter I've ever experienced. We had temperatures of negative 35, negative 40. You know, my car almost wouldn't start. Things are these, these are things that I have never experienced before. But on the other hand, uh, I'm happy to because I like seasons and Minnesota has seasons, whereas Florida doesn't have seasons. And I would argue Georgia <laughs> doesn't really have seasons because they don't really have a winter. I agree with that. So, uh, I mean, th- that's all. I-, I think I suggested I talk about how cold it is in Minnesota as a joke. Uh, but uh, I-, I, will, I will go to bat for the cold. I will, accept, I will accept a long winter if it means that I get four seasons, which, uh, you know, if, as, as climate change progresses, you may have to go further and further north to get your four seasons. Well, winter was intriguing pretty far south this year. Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> Well, okay, so so why the snow, Dan? Um, I, I I heard about I heard about this polar vortex thing, which I think was a was that a sci-fi original film? 
like short, oh, yeah. Shortnado. Yeah. I lived in the polar vortex. It was definitely a sci-fi original film. I hear it's the title of the, the sequel, uh, Polar Vortex versus Sharknado, but that's uh, just a rumor. <laughs> so I don't know about that. Nice. I'd watch that. Wait, yeah. now, oh, hang yeah. on a second. Could the, uh, could the polar vortex be so cold that it froze the Sharknado solid? Yeah, well, that, that you'll have to watch the movie to see. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a good question. Of course, the Sharknado could also destroy the polar vortex. I don't know. So by being Pretty evenly by, matched, yeah, I think I think they are. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah. Uh, when when that when that term started being thrown around in the media, uh, there you, you basically. Uh, if you were watching the meteorological community, you would have seen them do a collective facepalm. <laughs> because I suspected such would be the case. Yeah, and the reason being is that the pol- first of all, I'll, I'll explain what it is in a minute. But uh, the polar vortex, a uh, polar vortex, that term has been around for decades um, in in the meteorological parlance. It's it's a jargon. Um, term that the media picked up because, oh, hey, it sounds cool. Polar vortex sounds scary, you know, sounds cold. It evokes this sort of uh, imag- your imagination. And so they took that and ran with it. Uh, and the problem is that most of the commentators discussing it didn't have a clue what they were talking about and uh, hmm. uh, from, from the scientific perspective. But basically what it is is it's a semi-permanent large-scale cyclone that centered – um, on both poles, each pole has one. In fact, the one uh, over the South Pole is usually a stronger, larger, and more persistent because uh, there are less uh, less landmass in the Southern Hemisphere to sort of uh, muck the weather patterns up. So it's more stable down there. Um, and also you have a big continent right over the South Pole that makes things colder. So a polar vortex is at its core very cold. And it sits on top of a near-surface high-pressure system that happens during the polar night where everything just cools off, the atmosphere shrinks down. That makes cold high-pressure near the ground, but above that, it actually uh, makes a low-pressure system, and you get a jet stream that circles around that, very strong jet stream around, oh, say, between 40 and 60 degrees north. Now, what can happen is most of the time the polar vortex stays up, locked up in the Arctic, but what can happen is if it weakens, the, uh, the jet stream surrounding it can buckle, and you get these lobes that kind of look like you know, uh, arms of an amoeba that will mm. dip down. And pieces can actually break off and dive down further south. And that's what's been happening this winter. It's not unheard of. This kind of thing happens with that kind of cold maybe once every five to ten years or so. Um, Nowadays, we have shorter memories, but this has happened before, and it will happen again. Um, but pretty much every winter, you get one or two of these lobes of the polar vortex that will come down, and you'll get cold air outbreaks. This one just happened to be uh, particularly uh, intense. And then the, the large-scale pattern was such that you had a high-pressure system over the West Coast that was sort of diverting the jet stream um, up on the west, western U.S., and then buckling down to the south um, in the eastern U.S. So you just have this sort of train of cool air masses that continued to plump of the U.S. over the course of the winter, which is why we had such a cold winter. So that's, that's the basic idea. 
It okay, seems like so every the... few years the media picks up on one of these uh, weather terms and, and uh, runs with it. Because I remember El Nino in the 90s. <laughs> yes, yes. El Nino had its day. Um, then they got bored with that. Um, and then I guess, let's see, Polar Vortex. What was the more recent one than that or the one prior to that? I don't remember. There was another one there that that they uh, that they went and ran with too. It's kind of amusing at one level, but it also we have to do a lot of damage control <laughs> to try to explain <laughs> what really is going on. And actually, to, to their credit, a few of the weather service offices out there put out infographics on their Twitter feeds and Facebook pages showing this is what the polar vertex is. No, you can't see it. It's invisible. It's very large. You know, it's not something like a Sharknado, with all seriousness <laughs> aside. Well, all, all joking aside, but um, yeah, it, it's 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 there almost all the time. It starts to weaken in the summer, but it, it, yeah. This is a common theme when the media picks up scientific concepts, though, right? I mean, I remember a couple of years, and we may talk about this next week. The God, the God particle. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. yes, I remember. I remember the students at my college were just terrified that this somehow disproved the existence of God, or they were happy because oh, yeah. it proved the existence of God, or yeah. when in fact it doesn't so, really have anything to do with God at all. It's just a term the media used. Yeah, it, 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 that actually I don't want to steal next next episode's thunder, but it came from a a book that was written a while back where um, the 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 publisher wanted the, him to put. God particle in the title because he thought it would sell more books. I think it was Leon Laterman was the author, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it just snowballed from there. So, mm, okay. So, so I, I, I guess I guess our take kind of a giant elemental, you know, ice monster that that somehow inflicted us with its wrath, but in fact. The polar vortex, which has always been with us, just got a little drifty as it occasionally does. Yep. Awesome. Very much. Man, I am so sciencey today. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, speaking of the winter weather, um, I'm sure that you have your own winter weather stories, Nathan, even down there in the south, because you lived through Georgia's snowmageddon. Um, how did you survive and who did you eat first and were there wolves? Uh, what did I eat first? Basically what I was cooking every night because we never lost power. Uh, Uh, wolves, none that I saw. Uh, how did we survive? Uh, the answer is by not living in Atlanta. Uh, (laughs) Oh yes. Just a quick, uh, political commentary. And then David, I'll let you get back to the actual weather talk. Uh, a really nice essay about that whole debacle in Atlanta made the argument that if there were an actual government of Atlanta instead of 22 unrelated city and county governments, and if people actually lived in Atlanta instead of everyone commuting in on the same three highways, the ones that froze over, uh, <laughs> there wouldn't have been nearly the disaster that actually happened. So. Uh, Snowmageddon was a political phenomenon, not a meteorological one. Uh, I totally agree. And that's all I've got to say about that. (laughs) Political and infrastructural, basically. Yeah, six of one, half dozen of the other. (laughs) I'm just shocked that Atlanta politics didn't work as well as they're supposed to. (laughs) Well... Uh, we, 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 we jest and I, and I know I, I, you know, I heard stories that made me think of, you know, that made me think of 
the the more uh, uh, the the darker tales of Jack London. Um, but yeah, it it wasn't it wasn't so much the winter as it was the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I jest, but uh, various winter storms um, coming up suddenly on cities of unprepared people who don't know how to deal with various, you know, with, with a atyp- regionally atypical weather. Um, it did cause real and in some cases deadly hardship for thousands of people. Um, and weathermen took a lot of blame for it. Um, in my own hometown in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, one of the most prominent local meteorologists, a guy named James Spann, who is you know he's he's basically my weatherman. Wherever I move, that that man is the the image of weatherman for me. Right. He is, um, uh, his, his you brother, could do a lot worse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> his brother is C. Oh, good lord. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, uh, he got all kinds of hate mail, um, which he answered with an apology. Interestingly, um, so I want to pitch this at you, Dan. Um, and you can interact with the, the James Ban apology or take it in any direction you want. Um, how much responsibility does a weatherman have when things like what happened in Atlanta or what happened in Birmingham happen the way they do? Well, it's a great question. Um, well, first I'd like to talk about the specific example of James Spann in this case, and then maybe we'll get a little bit more philosophical about that. But um, I, I actually read the article, and I read his apology, um, and what struck me was the how well how good the forecast actually was. Um, mm. Now I wasn't there; I didn't wasn't watching the coverage. I wasn't watching his coverage. I don't know when he made his forecast and what times he revised them and things like that. But just going off what I read. And what I knew what uh, a lot of the forecasters were forecasting for that particular storm, uh, they did a pretty good job on the larger scale predicting how much snow would fall and where it would fall. It just so happened that on the north side of the storm, which is where the metro cities were of Atlanta and Birmingham, uh, that's where the most uncertainty was. And that's, that's very typical for these kind of uh, winter storms to not get the track exactly right and all in the uh, snow amounts if we can get within two or three inches uh in our forecast for a given location that's doing pretty darn good and that's actually what happened in birmingham um the forecasters the weather service forecasters and the local meteorologists like james Spann, were predicting uh a dusting i think in that region and then as the as more data came in more models came in it started to show that oh, maybe it was going to be a little bit further north and heavier amounts were going to be a little bit further north. And so that was revised upward to about two inches, but a lot of people didn't get the memo. Um, uh, although the Weather Service did have that out many hours in advance for Atlanta, but I digress. Anyway, um, <laughs> dusting versus two inches. In most areas of the country, um, that's not that's with well within – you know, tolerance for most people. Like, okay, we got a little bit more than we expected, you know. Um, but in a place like the South, where they're not used to these kind of winter storms, and the, like you were mentioning earlier, the political issues of not preparing well, all these people leaving all at once during the middle of the day when the snow was just starting to fall and icing up the roads, it was just a perfect storm, pun definitely intended, of, of mm. political and uh, meteorological mayhem. And so I actually believe to make to bring this all back together is that he really shouldn't have been apologizing. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know what he was apologizing for. I mean, I think he did pretty well. Um, 
So that's sort of my take on it. I mean, I guess I can understand maybe from, from he wants to, you know, be afraid that if he tried to stood, stand up for himself that it would backfire on him or something. But um, I thought that overall it was a good forecast and the blame lie, uh, lay elsewhere mm-hmm. so, in that case. So, but more philosophically, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I just, more philosophically speaking, how much, certainly there are cases where uh, weather forecasters miss some very important piece of the puzzle um, due to incompetence or what have you. And I do think that there, you know, that we should take a long, hard look at ourselves when we do that. I've seen cases of that happen. But for the most part, the vast majority of the cases, they do a pretty good job of, with a very limited data set and very difficult forecasting problems. And the weather does what the weather does. We don't control it. So we do the best we can to, uh, to get the best information out of the public. I do think there's culpability for how well we get that information out um, and for cases of gross negligence or incompetence. But I think those are you know, pretty few and far between. So um, I, I guess I just don't really know exactly how to answer that question. It's a, it's a, it's a tough one. Well, yeah, it, it, and it's, it's always going to be a tough question. But yeah. as, to, to the degree that I think people are unaware of the general issues that are involved in forecasting weather in general – they're going to regard meteorologists as wizards. Yes, yes. <laughs> in fact, I was thinking of that, that we often are looked at in this sort of mystical, you know, we're these mystical prognosticators, you know, and yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and pe- people who think that you're wizards and think think that you can call the call the weather and, and even in some sense, summon the weather, like with it, like you know, if, if if people irrationally blame the weatherman for bad weather happening, as if they somehow <laughs> made it by predicting it, right? Um, <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Um, you know, in, in particularly in in North Alabama, which you know, a lot of tornadoes in North Alabama, and a lot of people rely on the local meteorologists there for kind of up-to-minute, accurate, where do I need to be in the cases of emergency? Yes. And if if people are accustomed to relying on a meteorologist for that kind of detailed, um, what do I do, how do I stay safe, um, it's hard, f- I, I think, hard for them to to distinguish between tracking the path of a tornado, which is a very specific and precise kind of um, thing, if you've got people on the ground who can see it. Right. <laughs> Versus distinguishing between a dusting and two inches, yeah, or or when the front's going to hit town, um, yeah, I, I, th- I think you can get some uh, s- some some pretty not not justified, but but from the perspective of the people feeling them, they feel justified in their feelings. Sure, and and, and there's and you know to a certain extent they they are justified in that because one of the I think the biggest issues in forecasting right now, and we're having conferences about this um, and new initiatives. Um, one of the initiatives that I've been involved with is this Warn on Forecast program, which is a, uh, just to briefly outline that, um, our, for tornado and severe storm forecasting, our paradigm for forecasting those things, 
up to, uh, at least at the scale of the tornado itself, has been this worn-on detection paradigm. Like you just mentioned, people on the ground, uh, radar, detecting the tornado as it's happening, and then warning the public out ahead of that, oh, we see this tornado either by the radar or by spotters, and it's going this way, um, and you need to get take cover. We're, we're looking at maybe actually trying to use computer models to forecast those things maybe an hour or two in advance. Um, it's a very ambitious project, and we don't even know how well it's going to work, but we're, we're, we're working on that. Um, and one of the things that we became very clear very early on was how are we going to convey this kind of information to the public? We need to convey the uncertainty some way because, as you were mentioning, a lot of the public, they look for specific you know, what's the, when is it going to rain in my house? How much am I going to get? What's the high temperature going to be? They, they, they want, you know, black and white, yes or no, sort of hard and fast answers. And what we, what we can give is probabilistic information or ranges and uncertainties. And we've got to figure out how to do that. So we're actually trying to partner with a lot of social scientists to see how best to convey that uncertainty. And I just do not believe that overall we have done a very good job of that as a community. Well, in the meanwhile, um, while you uh, while you weathermen are working out uh, uh, how, how best to <laughs> communicate weather to us, Dan, um, uh, I'm going to turn to you, Michael, because because you're the one who watches television. Um, is there weather on the Weather Channel? Uh, last time I happened to be near cable television and flip through, um, it seemed like weather reality TV and weather theater. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, what happened is what happened to a lot of things like that. It's the same thing that happened to the TV Guide channel. Why on earth would you watch the Weather Channel when you can get more, I don't know, but more accurate, but more detailed information more quickly on the Internet? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the fact is the Weather Channel provides a valuable service for people who don't happen to have the internet, which is a decreasing number, I understand, but it's still a number. And I know that they got into some trouble a few years ago because there was some sort of major weather event. It may have been a big tornado outbreak, and they were showing the perfect storm instead of any kind of information on that. And I know that there were people somewhere in the country who were upset about that. But for the most part, I think most people will either uh, watch their local news for the weather uh, for for local weather, or they'll go to Weather Underground or Weather dot com. Or I used to go to AccuWeather until Dan Dawson told me not to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna take... get there. <laughs> um, I... And, and I, I I tend to use Weather Underground. Underground. In fact, I've been looking at it off and on throughout this because uh, we've had rain all day and now it has turned to snow, and I'm interested to see how bad the roads are going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that bad, probably. And I, so I, I tend to use Weather Underground or I go to uh, a local Minneapolis television station because they will tell me what's going to happen in my county, and that makes me feel good. <laughs> I'll go to the James Spans of the world, I suppose. But, I mean, as far as watching the Weather Channel, I don't think I've done it since I was a kid trying to get away from the uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents show <laughs> <laughs> to do a callback. Nice. Uh, do either do any of you watch the Weather Channel? No. <laughs> yeah. Not often. Yeah. I, last time I I was just kind of flipping through and I'm like looking at the show and it's like it's it's like a reality program and then and then I see down in the corner it's it's the Weather Channel. Like, but wait, you know what, what are they what are they going to do? I mean nobody's watching. 
So, yeah. so they have to get people watching. I mean, it's like what happened to t- the TV Guide Network. It used to be the TV Guide Network would take up the whole screen. And then uh, eventually the, the TV listings became like eight pixels and they would show reality programming because it's the cheapest thing to show on the rest of the screen. Because, one, I mean, who goes to the TV Guide channel to see what's on TV? You're going go to right. uh, go to the TV Guide website or some other website or Right, or with most cable yeah. subscription services, just hit the guide button. Right, right. So yeah. I mean, this is this is this is a remnant of the of the early days of cable television that we talked about last year, where where these niche channels were still possible. I mean, the Weather Channel was something that provided a very valuable service to a great number of people for a long time, but clearly, Absolutely. clearly, it has outlived its usefulness <laughs> by and large. It's, yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, because I mean, if there's a if there is severe weather. In your area, you're not going to turn to the weather channel anyway. You're going to turn to your local channel because they're going to they're going to interrupt the programming to tell you what's yes. happening. Right. So, so I mean, what the weather channel was good for was not severe weather. It was for uh, just kind of general weather reports throughout the day. Well, I, I see it yes. as this this general trend of I don't know the. The cable channels that were named after topics no longer being about that topic, you know? <laughs> history Channel, yep. not no history. Animal Planet, not very many animals. The TV tropes folk, folks call that network decay. Ah, <laughs> there's a word for that. Okay. Right. The TV tropes folks have a word for almost everything. Right. Well, well that's MTV, why you get lost on that Jersey website. Shore, Arts and Entertainment, Duck Dynasty. Well, and to say nothing of TLC and Discovery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True enough. True enough. So, so where should we go? Where should we go, Nan? Where do we go for the weather info? Who's who's well, got the accurate weather? Is it AccuWeather? Uh, I would give AccuWeather a pass at the risk of angering people who like AccuWeather. If you like AccuWeather, uh, I. Don't particularly like them for many reasons. Don't particularly like them. You, you, uh, yeah. I, I, I can hear you <laughs> screaming over the internet anytime somebody mentions it oh, on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yep. Now, um, what I would suggest is to uh, go to the source uh, for a lot of the weather info that all these other sources use, like AccuWeather and uh, the local TV meteorologists and Weather.com. Uh, would would be the National Weather Service website, which is just go to weather.gov. Um, you'll be greeted with a big map of the U.S. with all the counties and states and with all the different warnings and things that are going on. And if you just click on your where you live on there, it'll pull up your local National Weather Service website. And they have a whole trove of weather information on there, radar, local forecasts, um, and forecast discussions, if you want to read their reasoning. It's a little bit jargony, but they're fun. Um, and I, you just really can't do better than that. They're, they're some of the best forecasters out there, um, certainly better than AccuWeather. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people don't realize this, but um, the Weather Channel, most of the local, uh, all the local meteorologists, and most meteorologists out there that are in the private sector get their weather information, that is the raw data, the model output, the, op- the weather observations, those are all collected and ran- run by the National Weather Service. Um, and then they distill those into um, their forecasts. Now, far be it for me to say that that's a bad thing. I think it's great. There's this, this is in weather, 
in the U.S. is one of the best examples of private-public partnership that I think there is. Um, the private meteorologists do their great job in many cases of distilling uh, weather forecasts to specific markets, and the government does a great job of collecting the weather data and providing basic forecasting and warning services. So there's, there's a complementarity there. But I would just I would recommend the web, uh, the weather service website. That website More. ruined my life. You sent you sent me to it when I complained about AccuWeather once, and mm-hmm. now all summer I check that website twelve times a day to see if there's going to be a tornado in Waconia. Because <laughs> awesome. that, that that is my life now, and it and it, it has it has these colors, you know, and it tells you what the what the yeah. what the percentage chance of there being a tornado in your area is. It's the worst yeah. thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> well, for 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 the, for that also, I, I want to add the Storm Prediction Center website, uh, spc.noaa and oaa.gov. That's for your tornado watches and and severe thunderstorm watches. That's part of the weather service, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I this is not really about uh, weather uh, data and stuff that you can get, but everybody should be should have a weather radio. Um, it's the single most uh, effective thing you can do to protect yourself in the event of a tornado or severe thunderstorm because it will just go off. You can program it for your county. Everybody should have one, so go buy one if you don't have one. Yep. Well, the my only complaint about weather.gov is that it doesn't have those really interesting, like, stories in the sidebar about, like, giant catfish ate her husband and <laughs> uh, Bible secret for unlimited income. It also does not have uh, yeah. the picture of the sun wearing the sunglasses like the uh, AccuWeather site does for the oh, first yeah. days. Oh. And that's disappointing to me. Yeah, because I, I, I need my that. weather personified to understand it. <laughs> <laughs> also, it doesn't predict, predict the weather 100 days out like uh, AccuWeather. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're behind the, they're behind the ball on that one, but, you know, we're working on it. <laughs> well, I'm going to return to the beginning. We're going to end where we began. And uh, if there's a way to kind of illustrate harmonizing those kind of those those uh, well, the false dichotomy of dueling perspectives that we we pitched at the beginning, um, I'd like to do a little bit of an exercise. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Nathan, mm-hmm. and we're going to focus on the story of uh, Jesus calming the storm at sea in the Gospels. So you talk about it against the backdrop of God's mighty acts in, in the Old Testament, and then I'm going to pitch it to Dan. All right, so the stilling of the storm is a, an, an episode that happens in uh, Mark chapter 4, also in Matthew chapter 8, also in Luke chapter 8, and they run pretty close parallel. Uh, so you can really go to any of those three accounts and get basically the same words. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the way across the Sea of Galilee, uh, from Jewish territory there in northern Palestine over across to the region of Gerasa, uh, which is Gentile territory. This is a transit that really sort of brings to mind uh, something that, I oh gosh, I forget whether it was Michael or Dan who said this out at the beginning. I think it was Michael. Uh, that the ocean and the desert really play similar functions as far as settings in the Bible. Uh, they are places of death. They are hostile places. They are places where uh, divine presence and prayer make the most sense because you don't have any devices of your own to save you. A storm rises up. Uh, it beats on the boat. Um, and the disciples 
uh, realize that they are indeed uh, without any devices of their own to save themselves. So they wake up Jesus, who is sleeping in the boat, uh, and they ask him, you know, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus replies, uh, not to them, but rather to the sea itself. Uh, And what's interesting here is Jesus uses a verb uh, to rebuke, is usually how English translations render it, uh, that is usually part of exorcism scenes in the New Testament. Uh, In other words, Jesus speaks to the sea uh, as one speaks to a hostile spiritual entity, uh, rebukes it, tells it, peace be still, uh, and in fact, it exercises that authority over uh, what the story, like I said, treats as a hostile force uh, that is against Jesus and the disciples. After all of this, he hmm. asks them the famous question, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Uh, the disciples are astonished, and they question each other, saying, who is this then uh, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So in the New Testament, in the context of certainly that Old Testament background that we talked about earlier where the sea is the place where chaos, death, destruction originate, uh, this is a story about the divine power of Jesus. Uh, wherever Jesus is, the really, I mean, peace breaks out where there is hostility in the very elemental forces of the created order. So... That's the that's the upshot of the story from that perspective. Uh, David, now get Dan to tell us about another perspective, shall you? Yeah. Uh, what f- from a scientific perspective, if we look at that same story, um, what are the forces involved in a in a storm like the one that Jesus calms? I mean, I know that this story is supposed to show us Jesus might, but I don't understand weather well enough to to get any concept of how much we're seeing him binge, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's a number of ways of looking at this. Uh, one is, is that, you know, it was, you know, Jesus did supernaturally disperse the storm, in which case a scientific um, discussion of it is sort of moot because it, you can't explain it from a scientific uh, perspective possibility is that he knew it was going to dissipate and he it was a miracle of timing um i don't know I, but i i can give you what uh, what kind a uh, scientific description of one possible kind of storm that could have caused this sort of sequence of events so uh that would be a uh, thunderstorm squall line um mm. and uh these uh tend to happen fairly frequently in the warm season I'm not sure what time of year it was that this event happened in the, in the Bible, but one plausible mechanism for this is that you have a line of thunderstorms that forms somewhere else and is moving towards the boat. And what what happens with these things is that the line of thunderstorms constitute um, air that is flowing and then rising up in a line. Um, it, the water condenses into clouds and you get uh, rain, hail, lightning, and thunder in those updrafts. Um, but then that rain and hail fall down out the backside of the storm and produce what's called a cold pool uh, by evaporation and melting and cooling the air. And that cold pool spreads out like, like uh, water on a table. Mm. And so you get, it pushes out and runs into the warm air that's out ahead of the storm and forces the air upward. But then what happens is, and it, probably all of you have experienced this when you've been out as a storm is coming, you'll see a sudden change in wind direction and the temperature will drop 
and you'll get gusty winds. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the leading edge of that cold air that's spreading out from the storm. And that's called the gust front. It's analogous to a cold front, just on a smaller scale. And um, what can happen is as that gust front's passing, you get very strong winds. And if that's blowing across a body of water, you get a fetch of waves that build up behind it. And so this can happen very quickly. Everything could be fine. Suddenly this gust front will go by the boat, and then suddenly waves are everywhere, wind is everywhere, and it's total chaos. But that same storm, as it, as it blows by, behind it is often an area of comparative calm. And it just uh, could be a case where the, you have this t- tossing and turning, everything was going bad, and then suddenly that, that initial surge of air blows by and the winds calm in a, you know, as a, in a natural manner. So that would be um, a, a thoroughgoing scientific uh, description of that same scenario. So, how much, you know, what what kind of uh, speed of wind, amounts of rain, things like that? Because that because to me, when I'm in a storm, I just know that I'm wet and miserable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I I don't I don't have any kind of sense of, of how how big is weather, how heavy is weather. Yeah, you know, if if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it can be rather overwhelming. Um, it's one of the things that I love most about storm chasing, for example, is mm. that I get to put myself out in a scenario where I'm face-to-face with this awe-inspiring uh, phenomenon in nature that is so much bigger, you know, almost incomprehensibly bigger and more powerful than I am, and that I'm sort of at its mercy. And to me, those kinds of things... Again, this is my connection. I was saying back what, one of the reasons I like Job is that that sort of connects me with an experience of God um, in a way that few other things do. Is just I just feel very much that I'm a part of something much bigger than myself when I'm witnessing a storm. So weather is big. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that affects all of us all the time. And a lot of us don't, and myself included, even though I'm a meteorologist, sometimes just don't even put a whole lot of mind to it. But the minute something changes about it, then suddenly it's right up in our face. And sometimes we can't do anything about it. So it's big. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on. Um, And a a good way to, uh, again, to mesh those two perspectives together. Um, the more uh, the more knowledge you're, uh, you you bring into the weather, um, the 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 more awe you feel, rather than the less. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, uh, listeners, that's the end of our 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 episode one thirty one, in which we talk about the weather. Uh, if you have any uh, questions or comments about this, uh, to uh, well Nathan or Michael, but probably mostly Dan. Uh, please uh, send us emails at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or you can leave uh, messages on our Facebook wall uh, or you can leave notes, uh, you can leave uh, comments on the show notes when they post on our blog, christianhumanist.org slash chb. In the meanwhile, uh, I wish you all grand weeks and good weather wherever you are and uh, I will leave you with the words of Luther on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, Dan Dawson. Uh, Luther says, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. Hello, I saw you, I knew-